Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to this solo edition of The Politics Guys. Uh, so I guess it'd be The Politics Guy. Jay and I actually did record an entire show just uh, this morning, a few a few uh, hours ago, I guess. But it turned out that there was a major issue with his side of the recording, even on our backup recording. And so we were left with either doing no show or just having it be a solo show. Now, in fact, I've done a few solo shows back in the very, very early days of the politics, guys. Uh, so we're going to try that again. Let's hope that it's better than, than the alternative, which is uh, nothing for this week. And uh, we are taking care of the issues with uh, Jay's uh, equipment. Uh, he's getting a shiny new microphone and uh, with any luck, a new laptop before the next show. So all of this should be straightened out. Anyway, all right, here we go. Wish me luck. I may need it. So I open today with President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, along with his announced intention to move the U.S. Embassy, currently in Tel Aviv, to Jerusalem. Now, aside from Russia, the Czech Republic, and now the United States, no other countries recognize Jerusalem as the capital. Now, East Jerusalem, which is the likely Palestinian capital in any viable two-state solution to the conflict, is viewed by almost the entire world as being illegally occupied by the Israelis. And for decades, Israel has pursued a policy of developing settlements in East Jerusalem and in other Palestinian areas. And that's a practice that's been condemned by most of the world, including even at times the United States. The Trump administration says that the announcement of Jerusalem as the capital basically is just a reflection of reality. And in removing uncertainty about the status of Jerusalem, while this may be a new way forward to a peace agreement, which U.S. officials still say they envision as involving a, a two-state solution. So, now Jay's position on this is, well, it is in fact uh, a reflection of reality. And he points out that we've tried peace agreements for, for really for generations now and nothing has happened that's of any significance. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. Um, and in fact, you know, there was this 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act, which was passed by huge bipartisan majorities in Congress. In the Senate, it was 93 to 5. In the House, it was 374 to 37. Um, and so what Donald Trump is basically saying is, I'm no longer going to keep on granting these six-month waivers to this act, which every president since 1995 has done. And you know, there's obviously something to that. My response to that is that was always understood to be a symbolic move. It was a way of the Congress being able to, sim uh, to signal its support for Israel without actually having to follow through and have those kind of unfortunate consequences. And we're starting to see a little bit of violence and so forth. And so I think to me, this is another example of Donald Trump simply being over his head, uh, especially in foreign policy where he has zero experience. And, you know, I understand where Donald Trump is right, in fact, in saying we've tried it, the standard kind of elite establishment way and it hasn't worked for generations. So I'm going to try something new. Sure. Okay. Fine. There's, there's a point to be made for trying something different, but, but that doesn't mean that any big change 
just because it's different is worth trying. It's like the owner of the Cleveland Browns saying, you know, we've only won four games in the last three seasons. We haven't had a winning record in over a decade, so we're going to make a big change. We're going to pick one fan every week and let that fan play quarterback. That would be, what's what's the point in that? So secondly, I want to point out, okay, yes, it's true that Donald Trump is keeping a promise to his supporters, uh, especially this is a big deal with Christian evangelicals who have been pushing for this in a very kind of uh, organized way for a while now, including people like Sheldon Adelson, who donated tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and why? Well, it has to do with biblical interpretation and things like that. I'm no biblical scholar. I'm not in any position to, you know, clearly explain that, but this matters to a lot of the evangelicals. And so Donald Trump is keeping that promise. So, but in a sense, I don't see this as doing anything to advance U.S. interests in the area. It, sure, it may reflect reality, but my main question in when I saw this deal is, how does this? How is this deal making? Uh, if Donald Trump is such a great deal maker, why would he essentially give this away? Why wouldn't he say to the Israeli government, "I'm considering doing this. What are you going to do for me?" As far as I can tell, he didn't do that. And so, how does this make the United States position in the Middle East stronger or better? I don't see it. I see this as just a political move by Donald Trump that may not have huge negative implications in the Middle East, but certainly doesn't do anything for the United States. Um, now, one of the great things about having such a diverse group of Politics Guys listeners is that we often get all sorts of interesting and valuable perspectives and insights from our listeners. And so before I move on to the next story, I want to share a great example of this. It was a response to a Facebook post I made after the news of the president's moving the uh, embassy came out. It's from, and I apologize if I slaughter your name, uh, uh, Achinom Bentov. He writes, Hi, Mike, Israeli listener here. I don't want to speak for all my countrymen, but I think from what I've heard coming from other Israelis, my opinion is consistent. Violence in Israel and Palestine is incited very often. If you look at the list of terror attacks on Israel and reports of Israeli violence against Palestinians, you'll see it is unfortunately a very regular thing. The average Palestinian will not view President Trump's actions as any meaningful change, neither will the average Israeli. The President's action is, to be frank, more a talking point for Americans and internationals on both the right and the left than it is a meaningful incitement of violence, which is something I suggested it could be seen as in my post. He continues, I think both the liberals calling to denounce and the conservatives viewing this action as biblically sentimental are divorced from the reality of the conflict and using it to an extent to achieve their own moral gratification. Perhaps, to put more plainly, it's the active siege on your home going on for decades that's going to make you violent, not America relocating a building. You know, I thought that's a, that's a, very interesting point and an important point to bring through. You know, it's easy for me sitting here in a, in a room in Cincinnati, Ohio and reading things online to, to have a view, but somebody who's actually there, who's experienced the reality of this for you know their entire life, well, I think that's, that's a view worth considering. And I wanted to mention that. Before I move on to the next story, I want to thank our sponsor for today, Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, even people like me. I am, as I've said before, a disaster in the kitchen, but with Blue Apron, even I 
can make amazing meals. And Blue Apron does it all with super fresh, high quality ingredients. They partner with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers all across the United States. And they source ingredients to support a sustainable food system. And the thing I really love about them is that you get everything you need including all the seasonings. It's delivered right to your door. There are these clear, full-color preparation instruction sheets, plus it's incredibly flexible. I get to choose from a variety of meals, and I can even skip deliveries on weeks I'm out of town or don't want to get meals for whatever reason. You know. And they've got some great stuff in their current meal lineup, as usual. Roasted pork with fall vegetables and creamy maple mustard. I have no idea what creamy maple mustard is, but it sounds really good. Um, chili butter steaks with lemon parmesan broccoli and potatoes and creamy potato pasta with mushrooms and collard greens, all delivered right to your door. And Blue Apron is treating Politics Guys listeners to their first dinner. It's a $30 value if you visit blueapron.com slash TPG. So check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping at blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, moving on. More developments in the growing sexual harassment scandal on Capitol Hill. This week, three members of Congress resigned in the wake of allegations. We have House Republican Trent Franks, Franks sorry, House Democrat John Conyers, and of course, Senate Democrat Al Franken. In addition, House Republican Blake Farenthold and Democrat Ruben Cahoon have been accused of harassment. And finally, of course, there's Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, who President Trump has endorsed and who is once again receiving financial support from the Republican National Committee, which initially cut ties to Moore after multiple credible accusations were made against him. Now, when Jay and I talked about this earlier today, Jay pointed out that he felt the Democrats were making the smart strategic move here by basically trying to put in place a zero tolerance policy. And because of that policy, well, Al Franken has to be sacrificed for that policy. John Conyers, who I would argue has other issues. It seemed like there might have been some um, capability issues and, and mental capability issues in, involved with that as well. But his point was that the Democrats were taking some short-term losses to set themselves up much better in the longer term, understanding that there would be some natural public outcry over this that could actually do some long-term damage to Republican chances. I certainly agree with that. I also think that it's uh, morally the right thing to do. As, you know, as Mitt Romney said, no majority is worth losing our honor. And I think that's true whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Now, to be fair, it's a lot easier to push a zero tolerance policy when you are dealing with safe seats, right? I mean, uh, Al Franken's successor is going to be appointed by a Democratic governor. Now, it's possible that Al Franken or that that uh, sorry, whoever replaces Franken will get some you know tough competition in uh, 2020. It looks like uh, Mark Dayton, former Republican governor, might actually run now. If you're a Democrat, you might be thinking, well, it's a good thing Franken is out because he might not have won that election. And uh, Conyers' seat, of course, is very safe. And so I think that Democrats are sincere. I believe that Democrats are a party that's more concerned about this, which is not to say Republicans aren't concerned about this. But I think historically, Democrats have a better uh, track record of taking these claims from women more seriously. I'm 
Now, Roy Moore, that's an entirely different uh, situation, obviously. Roy Moore, I think, is a uh, – well, I, I'll just come out and say it. I think he's a reprehensible human being. I think he's a, a demagogue. He's a far worse demagogue even than President Trump. He said some awful things. He's done some awful things. Recently, that, that quote came up where he suggested that you know America was, in a way, great during the time of slavery because families were closer together. I mean, that's typical – Roy Moore, if you take a look at his statements over time. Now, Donald Trump, again, I think when he sees the establishment go one way, he just has this instinct, oftentimes a self-destructive and not very thoughtful instinct to go the other way. And so now he's endorsing Roy Moore. And of course, the RNC sort of has to follow suit along with that. I think that's something that's going to come back to haunt Republicans. And I think it should come back to haunt Republicans. I mean, my guess is that uh, Roy Moore is going to eke out a victory by a few percentage points over Doug Jones. Uh, I think that Republicans have no, uh, they can't do anything other than actually seat him, though they can certainly investigate and then potentially as the result of a a Senate Ethics Committee investigation, unseat him or expel him from the Senate. But that's going to take time. And of course, conveniently enough, that's the time during which, well, you can get some Republican legislation. To this. So there's some political calculation here, obviously, as well. Now, I hope that Roy Moore doesn't win. If he does, I hope he's expelled. But of course, what that means then is that, uh, is that Alabama's Republican governor will just go ahead and appoint a, a less uh, extreme candidate to, to fill in there, but just as conservative, probably, maybe not just as conservative. So that's maybe a bit more of a loss for, uh, for, for Democrats. I also feel like it's unfortunate that, uh, on both sides, really, that extremists tend to control the nomination process. I mean, Doug Jones is somebody who I think is just not palatable to too many Alabama Republicans who might consider voting for someone other than Roy Moore, Republicans who are concerned and deeply troubled by these credible allegations against Moore. But again, the problem on both sides is that you get very low participation, very low turnout in these primaries, and the people who do turn out are the most extreme people. And that's oftentimes not reflective of a lot of folks in the middle, and so it doesn't leave people with a lot of choices. That said, if you're an Alabama Republican listening to this, I would strongly encourage you to think about what Mitt Romney has said. And can you really in good conscience vote for somebody like a Roy Moore? Maybe the thing to do is just to stay home. I don't know. But anyway, enough on uh, enough on that. Finally, one other thing I should point out is so far, legislation to change Congress's system of dealing with this hasn't gone anywhere, though obviously Congress has been awfully busy of late. Even so, there's this thing in political science called the issue attention cycle. And it's the idea that the public gets very worked up, concerned over an issue, which I think the public certainly should be over sexual harassment. Uh, but what happens is over time and generally not a long period of time, the public moves on no matter how big of an issue, the public can't sustain its attention on it. And so a lot of times what policymakers do is they just sort of say the right things, do symbolic things, and nothing of real substance, waiting for it to blow over so they can get on with business as usual. I certainly hope that's not the case here, but I wouldn't be surprised and why why I think it's important for us to follow these sort of 
boring procedural process, things like legislation to make the process uh, in, in the House and the Senate more transparent, to make it less arduous for victims of harassment to pursue a case. And so certainly as that moves on or doesn't move on, as the case may be, uh, Jay and I will be following up on that. All right, moving on to our next story. Well, some good news, I guess sort of good news. The government won't be shutting down, at least not until December 22nd, since Congress approved a continuing resolution to fund the government until that day. Now, nobody, well, aside from a few Freedom Caucusers, wants the government shut down, so I expect there will eventually be a deal, and J.J.G.J. agrees with me. Um, the problem is that Republicans need Democratic support to get this through the Senate. This, this is not, uh, this is not subject to reconciliation rules. My bet is that we're going to see another continuing resolution later on this month, Jay agrees, and that there won't actually be an agreement on the budget for fiscal year 2018, which, um, by the way, started on October 1st until sometime in January at the earliest. And one of the reasons why is there are a lot of big differences that need to be negotiated. For instance, raising the spending caps put in place in a 2011 budget deal. Now, many Republicans want to see spending caps raised for defense-related purposes, while many Democrats are willing to deal and say, well, okay, if you raise the defense-related caps, we want to see an equal raising of non-defense-related caps on discretionary spending. A second issue, action on uh, the status of undocumented immigrants. Uh, now, Democrats want this included in the bill. In fact, Jeff Flake says that that, that was part of the reason why he voted for the uh, tax legislation. Republicans say, well, President Trump gave us until March to do this. Why don't we go ahead and just deal with this separately? Another big issue is the stabilization of Obamacare exchange markets. You might recall we talked about this last week on the show, something that Susan Collins says she was promised action on in exchange for her vote on, the on again, that Senate recently passed tax, tax legislation. So what is this going to look like? Gosh, I don't know. I, I would expect that both parties, since they both, neither party wants a shutdown to happen. And as Jay pointed out, Republicans tend to get the blame, more of the blame for a government shutdown. I argue that, that that's only fair because they tend to be the instigators. Jay had a slightly different point, but there's going to be a deal. And I would expect it's going to involve raising some spending caps, both for defense and non-defense purposes. I sure hope it, it has something to, it, it has something to do with or it involves uh, the status of undocumented immigrants as well as Obamacare exchange stabilization. But gosh, only knows. I mean, certainly the track record of Republicans and Democrats or Republicans bringing Democrats on board to work something out under the Trump administration in this Congress has been, well, just non-existent. So who knows what we're going to see? I'm sure Jay and I will be talking a lot more about this, uh, well, probably sometime in uh, late December and early January. Um, one thing I would like to point out, and something Jay and I talked about, deficits. Uh, you know, deficits aren't always a bad thing. Uh, for instance, Republicans make this case all the time. When they push for tax cuts, that they argue, well, well, okay, increase the deficit, but they'll also increase growth. Now, they don't actually end up paying for themselves. Now, Jay and I disagree a little bit on this, but I think the weight of economic evidence on both the left and the right from economists 
you know, agrees with me. But the point being is you can make a case that certain tax cuts make sense because even if the long term they cost, sorry, in the short term they cost you money, in the long term they're a good investment in growth. The same logic applies for certain investments that will pay dividends down the road. Like, for instance, infrastructure investments, which is something that, you know, both Jay and I hope that President Trump and could get some bipartisan agreement with in Congress and make that maybe the first big initiative of his administration back in January, February. That, well, you know how that worked out or didn't work out. But anyway, water under the bridge. Another thing I'd love to see, a big pay raise for members of Congress, congressional staff, and a lot more money for government support agencies like the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office, as well as the IRS. Now, especially because the IRS, I mean, you can actually raise a lot more money by putting more money into enforcement of the tax laws we have without increasing taxes. But of course, that's kind of anathema, especially to people on the right. You know, why pay raises for members of Congress and staff just to try to, to try to redress some of the imbalance between what people make in Congress and what they make lobbying Congress. There's a huge differential. And what that means is that, well, there's this big revolving door between congressional work being in Congress or being a staffer and going to work lobbying Congress, and in part because you go where the money is. And and I really think given what our legislature legislators do and staffers do, and given the incentives to uh, sell out or shade a few things to make big money in the future, that might be money well spent. All right, moving on to our next story. I keep on saying R, but it's actually my next story today. Very weird. Okay, bear with me, folks. So this week, President Trump made major reductions to the size of two national monuments in Utah, cutting the Bears Ear National Monument by 85% and the Grand Staircase Escalante by around 50%. Now, both were designated national monuments under the, Antiqui uh, sorry, the Antiquities Act by President Obama, who designated a total of 26 national monuments comprising 88.3 million acres. And that's more than any other president since my all-time favorite president, Theodore Roosevelt, signed the Antiquities Act into law in 1906. Now, this is an issue that Jay and I more or less agree on. Um, Jay argues that the Antiquities Act was not intended as essentially an Environmental Protection Act, which is what he argues how President Obama used it. I agree. I think President Obama designated these large swaths of land as uh, as a way to protect the environment, and, and I'm all for that. You know, I think that the Trump administration has been uh, not at all a friend to the environment, and we've I've talked about the EPA. I could talk about the Department of the Interior. I think this is the most environmentally unfriendly administration in modern history, and it's deeply troubling to me. But that said. I don't think the way to go is to use the Antiquities Act to do something it wasn't intended to do. What I would love to see is a Democratic Congress passing some sort of legislation to protect these laws as, as well as a, I, I would take an EPA chair who doesn't seem actively hostile to uh, the environment, but you know, what are you going to do? Elections have consequences. So, you know, there's actually a bill in Congress right now to limit presidential power to designate national monuments, which would require that the president get public input on any potential designations over a certain size 
as well as to get approval from state and local officials for especially large designations of land. Now, I don't necessarily like the, this specific bill, but I think it's probably the right idea. This also is another thing that Jay and I agree on. We're both very uh, reluctant or very concerned about uh, what we see as sometimes abuse of executive power. That's true whether that executive is President Obama or President Trump. And, you know, it's, it, it's very easy, well, to abuse for one person. And so we would both like to see executive power constrained in certain areas. And I think really this is one of those areas. And so I think that I don't know that I don't know what President Trump's motives were here exactly, but I think in this case that, yeah, President Obama went a bit further than the Antiquities Act really intended. And while I agree with his intentions, I, I, I got to say that I, I, I'm kind of with, God, can I say this? I sort of tend to agree with, with President Trump's stated motives, at least for this. Oh, God. Sorry, folks. Okay. Um, before we move on, Many of you know that last week we announced that our advertiser support was really kind of slowing to a trickle and that it was going to end altogether early next year as we move to a completely ad-free, non-profit format. Now, that means, of course, that listener support is what's going to keep us afloat. And, you know, being the great group that you are, many of you have already responded with a pledge of financial support. We want to thank our newest Patreon monthly sustaining supporters, Dusty, Andrew, Beverly, and Dan. And also, thank you, Shelly, for doubling the amount of your monthly support for the show on Patreon. Also, thanks to Teresa, Victor, and Anne, who made generous contributions to the show through PayPal. Uh, Anne wrote, thanks for putting PayPal back on. It was our pleasure to do. I'm sorry I took it off in the first place. And Victor says, I've been a big fan of the show and a valuable perspective for a while now. I look forward to sitting in my backyard on Sunday evenings and listening to your show. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much. And as I mentioned, with our move to that ad-free format, uh, your support is more important than ever. So if you'd like to join our great and growing group of Politics Guys supporters, go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. All right, moving on. What do we have still? Well, actually, it's time for what we're reading where we step back from the crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, or watching. Now, Jay's thing for this week, well, Jay was talking about the Supreme Court, specifically the arguments in the, the oral arguments in the case that we didn't cover this week about the whether or not someone can be forced to bake a cake for uh, that, that may be espousing views that that person, that cake baking artist doesn't agree with. There was a case about this uh, involving a Colorado cake baker and a gay wedding, which recently there were oral arguments. Now, we didn't cover this. We will cover it when the court comes out with its decision. But Jay's point wasn't about the merits of the case. It was about this is sort of our system in action. And it's fascinating and in a way heartening to listen to the justices on both sides ask difficult questions to both sides of this case, you know, and, and it really makes you think about what the arguments are and it gives you, you no, know, I'd say a little bit of faith in our system. I guess I should point out that, of course, the courts are our least democratic part of the system. And if the least democratic part is the part you have the most faith in, maybe there are some larger issues. I would certainly argue there are, but that's another story. Anyway, you can check out oral arguments at a lot of places. The Supreme Court's website, um, there are uh, a number of other sites, but I'll make sure to post a link 
on the show notes about that if you want to check that out. Highly recommended. Okay, so my thing for this week. Well, it's not so much an article that I would suggest people read, but it's kind of an announcement that, that I think you should be aware of. If you go to Google or Bing or whatever you use, DuckDuckGo, whatever, and type in Patreon new fee, you're going to see a whole bunch of articles about a big change that Patreon's made. And this is, this is, you know, going to impact a lot of folks. Even if you're not a politics guys Patreon supporter, even if you support anyone, anything on Patreon, it's going to matter. Basically, starting December 18th, Patreon is going to start charging uh, pledgers, patrons, 2.9% plus 35 cents for each individual pledge. Now, meaning if, if I understand that correctly, let's say you pledge a dollar a month to the politics guys. Well, well now you're going to be charged a dollar 38 a month, which is, do the math, even I can do this math, a 38% increase. Now, Patreon says they did this so that creators, that's people like Jamie, would get more money. Patreon's still going to be taking 5% off the top of what they give us, and that's for administrative costs. And that goes for things like a, a nice, easy-to-use uh, interface, inf a lot of information that's really helpful to us. We really like it. In fact, up until now, we've encouraged people interested in supporting us to use Patreon over PayPal if they could, because even though, at least under the current system, they take a touch over 10%, we felt the benefits were worth the cost to us. But now you're being asked to pay more of those costs. And so we would certainly understand if you want to find another way to support us, especially if you support other things on Patreon, because you'll be incurring those costs with every single pledge. Now, if you don't mind sticking with Patreon, that's great. Like I said, we like it better. It makes life easier for us. And we'll actually be seeing about 5% more every month under this new setup, other things being equal. But if you're looking to move away from them, we have our PayPal support option, which we also, you know, allows you to make a either a one-time contribution or a regular monthly donation to the show, which is really helpful to us, allows us to plan and so forth. So, but anyway, I wanted to let you know about this. You might want to let Patreon know about this if you're unhappy about it, get in touch with them. You know, personally, even though it, it costs us money, I like their old structure better, and I would encourage you to get in touch with them if you agree with me about that. Anyway, I wanted to let you know what's going on, how it might affect you, and what your options are. Thanks very much. Okay, well, I think that just about does it. I'm going to have to gargle or something, and then my voice is about shot. It's really hard doing a one-person show. Hope it wasn't too much of a travesty, I don't know. Let me know what you think. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't ask that question anyway, or suggest you do that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks also for bearing with me. I promise Jay will be back next week with new and improved equipment. We still have just about enough. We can reach deep into our dwindling resources and get him some equipment uh, to bring things up to snuff. We really hope you like, I hope you like what you heard. It wasn't too bad. And then to check out today's sponsor, Blue Apron, where Politics Guys listeners get their first dinner. That's a $30 value for free with free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash TPG. And listeners support more important to us now than ever. If you'd like to help us out, politicsguys.com. Click on the Patreon link to become a sustaining monthly support, or we just talked about this, PayPal to make a one-time or regular contribution. And of course, if you want to support the show without spending anything, share this episode with your friends and followers, or pass along a new show posts and tweets on Facebook or Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. Folks, I am fading fast. Let me get through this. Okay, if you want to email us, mail at politicsguys.com. You know where our Facebook page is. 
Facebook.com slash Politics Guys. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. Is anyone still listening? I always wonder if people just turn off the show at this point. You know what? Let's do this. If you're still listening, I'm going to pass along the secret word. I sometimes do that in exams to my students, give them a secret word to see if they're reading the instructions. The secret word is going to be Tubalcane. And if you write in Tubalcane, I don't know, to either the Facebook page or, or, or I don't know, Twitter or something like that, you'll get, you won't get anything. I don't know, a star, whatever. So I'm just curious. Am I getting a little loopy now? Yes. Anyway, the executive, I'm going to just shut up. The executive producer of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson, though I imagine that Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson might want to disavow all connection to this particular episode. This show, hey, it's all on me <laughs> for today. We will be back with a new show on Wednesday, and I promise it won't just be me. We'll also be back with a new show next Saturday, and again, not just me. Me and Jay, me and Trey, but I promise you, not just me. We hope you join us.